CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than a million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we look at how to use insights from behavioral science to improve your life. We examine what it means to have a good day and figure out how to reverse engineer more good days by examining decision-making, the power of rest, recovery, and breaks, intention-setting, boundaries, and much more with our guest, Caroline Webb. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should join our email list today by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. There's some amazing stuff that's only available to our email subscribers. So be sure to sign up and join the email list today. First, you're going to get an awesome free guide that we created based on listener demand. This is our most popular guide and it's called How to Organize and Remember Everything, which you can get completely for free along with another surprise bonus guide. You got to sign up to find out by joining the email list today. Next, you're going to get a curated weekly email from us every week called Mindset Monday. Our listeners have been absolutely loving this email. It's short, it's simple, it's filled with articles, videos, stories, things we found interesting or fascinating in the last week. Lastly, you're going to get exclusive content and a chance to shape the show. You can help us vote on guests. You can help us change our intro music and much more. You can even submit your own questions to upcoming guests. You'll also have access to exclusive giveaways that only people who are on the email list get access to and much, much more. Be sure to sign up and join the email list. There's some incredible stuff, but only subscribers who are on the email list are getting access to this awesome information. In our previous episode, we learned the memory tactics and strategies of an international grandmaster of memory. We looked at why there is no such thing as a bad memory or a good memory, only bad memory strategies and good memory strategies. 
In real time, we built a memory palace that you can use to memorize and effortlessly recall the 10 emotions of power. We went deep into a system for organizing and remembering huge chunks of information and much more with our guest, Kevin Horsley. If you want to learn how you can use the tactics of a memory grandmaster to improve your own memory, listen to that episode. Now for the show. Today, we have another exciting guest on the show, Caroline Webb. Caroline is the CEO of Seven Shift, a firm that uses insights from behavioral science to improve their clients' working lives. She's previously a partner at McKinsey Consulting and is the best-selling author of How to Have a Good Day, which has been published in 16 languages, more than 60 countries. Her work has been featured in Inc., Forbes, Fortune, and much more. Caroline, welcome to the Science of Success. Hi, Matt. I'm delighted to be here. Well, we're super excited to have you on the show today. I'd love to start out with you know, kind of at a high level, tell me a little bit about what does it mean to have a good day? Yeah, it's an audacious title for a book, isn't it? Because it does suggest that I have a a strong perspective on what a good day is. And the truth is, of course, everyone's a little bit different. But for many years at uh, McKinsey, the consulting firm, I was doing organizational change work. And at the beginning of every single project, and that meant working across an enormous number of organizations, I would always ask people in interviews, what is a good day for you? And what is a bad day? And what would it take to get more good days? And over the years, the number of data points that just started to come together really struck me that there were three big themes. There was something around feeling that your time was spent on the right things. And that was something about priorities. It was something about productivity and going after those priorities. There was something about feeling great about knocking the ball out of the park on whatever it was that you were doing. And of course, sometimes that's about having brilliant conversations and really having perfect interactions with everybody you meet. Sometimes it's about just being brilliant in the way that you express yourself and the influence that you have. And sometimes it's about being brilliant in the quality of the thinking that you do. And then there's always something about the extent to which it feels like it's something that people can repeat at the end of the day. You know, you get to the end of the day, are you exhausted? Or do you feel like you've got some energy? Do you feel like you've been able to be resilient to the ups and downs? You know, has there been some enjoyment, some pleasure, some even some laughter? So I think, you know, those were the pillars that just came up again and again for people at the beginning of their career, late in their career, in all sorts of different cultures. And so that's what I wanted to write a book about. What's the science that tells us how to do all of those things? And I think that's a great kind of point because you talked, you know, when you hear have a good day, it sounds a bit sort of fluffy. And, you know, obviously the book and, and your work is a, is a lot more rooted in science and data than that. So tell me a little bit more about kind of the scientific research behind a lot of the work that you talk about in the book. Well, I had a first career as an economist, which was a very technical role. And I took that interest in an evidence-based approach to, as it was then, you know, I was making public policy. I was a public policy economist. I took that interest in always being grounded in what the evidence says really through every part of my career. So after about a decade working as an economist, I went into consulting because I was interested in getting a little bit closer to the human side of what economics had always, you know, been appealing to me about. And interested in this sort of sense of what is it that really enables people to change and you know what is it that allows an organization to move its culture in a more positive direction and so on. And I did some additional training in psychology and neuroscience as it became obvious to me that economics really wasn't, you know, the whole story when it comes to behavioral science. And I, what I noticed was that when I was working with people on changing their team's behavior, their company's culture, 
there was a lot of skepticism about, well, people coming in and waving their arms around and saying you should behave differently, as you can imagine. What I noticed was that people were way more willing to explore new ways of behaving if they understood what the science was behind it. And so I started to understand that really quite a small amount of understanding of how our brains work, why we think and feel and behave the way we do actually made a dramatic difference to people's willingness and ability to make changes in their lives. And so that just became really central to my style over 12 years as a management consultant, that I would always start with the with the science of what we were trying to do. And of course, then very quickly moved to the practical implications of that. But you know, I always found that smart people need a clear sense of the why as well as the how in you know deciding what they're going to shift in the way they operate. So you know that that blend of science and practice has been so so central to my practice now for a really long time. So let's dig into some of the scientific kind of components of having a good day and living a productive life. One of the core ideas that you talk about is this notion of the two system brain. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Well, that's something that exists in just about every strain of behavioral science. So, you know, you probably, if you've read Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, you'll know this is the slow and the fastest system, um, system two and system one in that order. And we have this understanding now over many decades of research that there are two systems that interact in our brains. One is that it, one is the one that takes care of everything we do consciously. It's responsible for reasoning, for self-control, for planning. It's the sort of thing that we think of as ourselves because it's what we're conscious of. And that is known as system two. And that is the slow system. And it has its limitations. It's what you know makes us feel as if we're intelligent, human, sentient human beings. But it's also got limitations in the amount of information it can process and the extent to which it can process multiple activities at once. And so we're very lucky to have this other system, which is the automatic system, which takes care of everything on autopilot and filters out a ton of information that the deliberate system would find overwhelming to process. And it's the interaction of these two systems that really makes us the amazing human beings that we are. But a lot of the time when we're working, you know, from day to day, when we're going through our lives, we are not really all that conscious of the fact that our automatic system is taking shortcuts all the time and sometimes doing some dumb stuff. You know, it's, it's what makes us when we are feeling stressed, it's what makes us blurt out silly things. It's what makes us perhaps fall prey to fallacies and scams. It's always taking the easy answer rather than the right answer. And, you know, thank goodness, because we don't want to overthink absolutely everything, but it does trip us up. And so it really helps to understand how we create the conditions for our deliberate system to be at its best from day to day, not to get too tired, not to get too overloaded, and recognize the limitations of the automatic system so that we can make good choices and uh, not do dumb things. <laughs> I think that's so important. And, you know, in many ways comes back to the kind of the evolution of the brain and the, and the physical limitations of our mental hardware. You know, the subconscious mind has so much processing power, but yet it falls prey to, you know, all of these shortcuts, which really manifest themselves in cognitive biases and, and, you know, misperceptions and improper reactions. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, one of the simplest things that we can do to get the best out of ourselves from day to day is to recognize that if we tire out our deliberate system, then our automatic system will kick in and it just doesn't make, you know, the choices that are always right. If you are making a big decision about where to invest I don't know, where do you where to open your next branch or where to make a big new investment? You want to think about all the different options. You want to weigh up, you know, your pros and cons, and you want to be thoughtful about making sure that you're not just jumping to conclusions. And the thing is that, you know, if you saw an Italian colleague this morning, it might just plant subconsciously the idea that investing in Italy is a fantastic idea, which it might be, but that's an example of the sort of shortcut that your brain might take that isn't necessarily something you're conscious of, but that might lead you in a direction that isn't quite right. On the other hand, if you see an Italian colleague and you are agonizing over where to take your client to lunch, you know, fine. It's great if it then leads you to decide to go for an Italian restaurant. I mean, that's not a big deal. It's quite useful to have our automatic system taking shortcuts for the small everyday stuff. We just need to be aware that when we are making bigger and more important decisions, we should slow down and make sure that we're considering multiple options. So how do we take that, you know, sort of the distinction between system one and system two and what are kind of the practical implications for that from the way we should be shaping our behavior? Yeah. Well, I think being super kind to your deliberate system by thinking about the fact that the longer we go without taking a break, the more exhausted it is. And the worse our decisions are. There's a fascinating range of studies from, you know, buying a suit to question of whether you wash your hands if you're a hospital worker. People make poorer choices, poorer decisions, the longer it is since they've taken a break because their deliberate system is tired. So I think one of the biggest shifts that I've seen in my life and I've seen in colleagues' lives is to understand that breaks are not you know, for wimps. (laughs) Breaks are actually crucial reboot opportunities for your deliberate system. And if you don't take that time, you are going to find that your thinking is less sharp. You won't be aware of it necessarily, but you will be making poorer choices. And it doesn't have to be a long break. The evidence is pretty clear that actually pretty short breaks and pretty frequent short breaks will give you an enormously enhanced ability to make good choices throughout the day. But, you know, you think about the length of the average meeting and how long we go before really taking a break. We might go from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. And we often don't give ourselves the chance to step back and reflect. So if there were one thing that I would say, you know, is helpful in giving our deliberate system the situation it needs to be at its best, I would say to take more breaks. And the other is, of course, as you will probably know, is to do more single tasking and not to overload our brain with requests, because we know that the deliberate system can actually only do one thing at a time, much as we think that we can do multiple things in parallel. I want to get into multitasking, but before we kind of dive down that that rabbit hole, tell me a little bit more about what are these breaks or sort of what should these breaks look like? You know, how long should they be and what should we do during the breaks? Well, everyone's a little bit different, but the research suggests that if you are in a situation where you can't actually get up physically and go for a walk, there is you know, a huge benefit to some physical activity in terms of boosting your focus and your mood very quickly if you have an ability to get a moderate amount of cardiovascular activity. And that means just you know going for a brisk walk for 10 minutes. If you can't do that, in fact, if you're rooted, say, at your desk and you can't actually physically get up, 
what's been interesting in the research is that it helps to shift task to something different. And that when you return to the original task, then the, there's just enough refreshment in your brain that you're able to come to what you were looking at before with some fresh insight. And some of that is about resting the brain, but some of it is also about what goes on in the so-called resting brain, which is that we continue to encode and consolidate information that we've previously been exposed to when we are supposedly stepping away and not doing anything with it. And that's why, you know, when you do step away and come back, there's not just perhaps a little bit of extra energy and more cognitive ability, more focus, but often new insight because your brain has been processing the information in the background and doing interesting things with it. And so, you know, I would encourage people to think about how to, you know, if they're in the middle of a writing task, you know, maybe think about doing something visual or vice versa, if they're, you know, sinking into the depths of Excel, to maybe, you know, take out a piece of paper and and do a little bit of freehand writing about, you know, their next big project. This sort of refreshment has been shown to to be, you know, pretty helpful when we're trying to have a breakthrough in the work that we're doing. That's such an important concept. And, and you know, I think there's a, some neuroscience literature around the phrase creative incubation, which, which may yeah. be describing sort of a similar or the same phenomenon, which is that idea that if you're struggling with something and you kind of step away for, you know, 10 minutes or an hour or even longer, and then you come back, you almost kind of immediately often figure out what was causing you to struggle with it. Yeah. And we know that overnight when you, you know, the idea of sleeping on something and then you suddenly see the way forward the next day. But uh, studies have shown that even a two or three minute incubation period can be enough to come back with fresh insight. Again, you know, as I say, it's, it's the fact that you were obviously soaking in a bunch of information. You step away from it and your brain doesn't stop thinking about it. It's subconsciously, the automatic system is doing some interesting processing. And if you think about what insight is, it's connecting existing information in new ways. It's allowing you to see a new way forward because you're connecting the dots in a different way. So that background processing is exactly what you need quite often to solve things where there isn't an obvious linear way forward. So yeah, just taking, you know, if you do nothing else, getting up and stretching for two minutes and then coming back, I mean, frankly, just going to the restroom (laughs) can be enough to come back and then suddenly see a new way forward. So yeah, I know lots and lots of people who don't really give themselves those breaks during the day. And it would be one very simple thing that people could do to boost their boost their productivity and their insight. And what about longer kind of planned periods of downtime and recovery mm-hmm. and kind of the notion of, of, you know, working, you know, working an 80 hour week versus working a 50 or 60 hour week and sort of what's the productivity difference between those kind of two strategies? That's yeah, a good question. I'm speaking as someone who worked in consulting, which is famous for long hours, but had entirely average normal person stamina. I can tell you that, you know, it turned out to be pretty possible to do 80 hours work, what was supposed to be 80 hours work in 50 hours work, if you were very, very clear about your boundaries. And I had to actually, you know, work shorter hours than the people around me. I just didn't have the, I just didn't have the physical stamina to, you know, to run short of sleep. So, you know, that speaks to me quite personally, that question. There's certainly, you know, obviously industries where there is an expectation that you're always on because, you know, perhaps you're in client service and, you know, it's always the client first. Whenever the client wants something, you have to jump. 
But, you know, the evidence is clear that once you get beyond, well, there are lots of different studies that pick different points. There's definitely evidence to suggest that after you've worked eight hours that your productivity starts to decline in a day. Everyone is, again, as I've said before, a little bit different. But I think recognizing that if you are really strict about the boundaries that you set during the day, the chances are you can probably reduce the amount of time that you're spending in a day. I mean, just the fact that single tasking means that you are working on average about 30% faster than multitasking is going to give you back a bunch of time in the day, for example. So let's dig into that a little bit. Tell me, tell me more about single tasking and whether or not it's possible to multitask. <laughs> um, yeah. So the brain has a single attentional bottleneck, which means that when we're doing things that require conscious attention, and we're doing them in parallel, we, we think that we're actually processing in parallel, but actually we're asking our brain to switch attention from one thing to the other, and then back again, and then back again, and back again. And in each of these tiny switches, which are so small, we don't really notice them, but if each of these switches, we are losing a little bit of time and mental energy. And I sometimes demonstrate this by getting people to say one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and then to say A, B, C, D, F, G as fast as they can, and then to mix them up. So you say A1, B2, C3, and so on. And if you're trying this at home, what you'll notice is, first of all, it suddenly becomes very hard to get through uh, the combination. It should take about the same amount of time put together as when you do letters and numbers separately. But the cost of switching from one to the other is so great that you know, what you experience directly by trying that is more or less what's been found in the laboratory, which is that you know, when we try to do two things at once, and, you know, that's not counting trying to do three things at once or four things at once. If you've got Slack open while you're on a conference call and you're emailing at the same time, you've got, uh, you've got a hit, which is really dramatic. You make between two and four times as many errors and you sort of slow yourself down by about 30%. And that's on sort of simple tasks. So, you know, there's also interesting studies that look at the quality of decisions that you can make when you are constantly being interrupted. And yes, by and large, we make poorer decisions when we're interrupted and we get more stressed when we are trying to multitask and it's much harder to be creative and so on. The studies just pile up on this and it is all because your poor deliberate system can only actually do one thing at a time. I think sometimes we think we can because the automatic system can do multiple things at once. So if something really doesn't require any conscious attention then you can do it in parallel, which is why you can maybe check your email while you're brushing your teeth. I mean, obviously not that, not that anyone does that, right? <laughs> That's a great example. And, you know, I just, I sort of tried to do the, the ABC exercise in my head. And like, after about C3, I basically started. Yeah, you lose the will. <laughs> yeah, melting down. Uh, so that's a really, that's a really concise way of looking at the fact that sort of doing the single tasks is, is much more effective. Yeah. And the thing is, you know, it's hard because we like to have little, you know, signs that we're wanted and needed by the rest of the world. So actually a little ping, a little buzz here and there is quite exciting. And you know, people who are listening to this will probably have seen, you know, lots of evidence on the fact that one of the reasons that we find our smartphones so addictive is because you don't know when the next exciting thing is going to come. And that sort of novelty and uncertainty is actually a very powerful, seductive combination. So, you know, what can we do? We can be way 
more deliberate about figuring out what's the most important thing that I'm doing today and how do I get myself to single task on that, knowing that I'll be faster and smarter when I'm doing that. And I think, you know, a lot of people think that they could just should leave that to willpower. I think the evidence on personal change is really leaning against willpower being the right way to do to make big things happen in your life. I think it's about changing the environment around you to make it easier to to make the choices you say you want to make. You know, so that means turning off notifications, that means figuring out how to block out ambient noise if you are uh, in a, an open plan office, which most of us are. I'm also, you know, very much trying to use tech to try and fight tech, as it were. So I use Stay Focused, which is a an extension that blocks my access to, well, whatever site I decide. I mean, so, you know, it manages my time on social media. I use my phone settings to make sure that, you know, I can switch my phone to monochrome very easily, which makes it so much less exciting to pick up the phone. I use something called inbox when ready, which means that I don't get to see my inbox unless I really, really choose to. And tiny little things like this start to make it a lot easier to actually create the focus, the single tasking time when you need it. That's really, really interesting. So what's the app that uh, you use to switch your phone to monochrome? You know, it's buried. Whether you've got an Android or an an iPhone, it's actually, it exists. They're accessibility shortcuts buried in your phone's DNA. So it's obviously sort of deep in the settings. You want to look for accessibility shortcuts. And on the iPhone, there is something that you can set your phone to do when you press the home button three times. And you have a various, various different options that you can choose. One of them is to change the color. And one of the color options is to make it monochrome. <laughs> so, you know, why not, right? I mean, that's not to say that you wouldn't want it to be in full color for, you know, a lot of stuff you're doing. But if you just want to kind of stop that grazing behavior and make it just a little bit less delightful to pick up the phone, then, you know, it's, it's a little thing, little nudge that uh, pushes you in the right direction. And we touched on this briefly kind of in the pre-show discussion, but tell me about, you know, I think many listeners might be familiar with the idea of nudges, but tell me about mm-hmm. sort of a sludge as, as you described it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, nudge is a term that was popularized by the marvelous Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler in their book Nudge, which laid out the concept of you know, understanding the biases that we have recognizing that our automatic system always wants to do what's easiest and recognizing that it's a certain behavior that we want to create in ourselves or in others, that making it easy for someone to do that thing is always going to make it far like more likely that we do it. So, you know, if you want to drink more water, put water on, you know, within reach and move the soda a little further away and so on. So these are nudges because they don't make you do something. They just make it easier for you to, to do the right thing. And quite recently, I mean, I would say in the last few months, I've seen this term sludge be used, which makes me smile. And the way it's being used is to describe things that make it harder for you to do the wrong thing. So if nudges make it easier for you to do the right thing, then sludges make it harder for you to do the wrong thing. And sludge, of course, can be used in very negative and naughty ways. Like if you're trying to unsubscribe from a website, you know, you you might be put through multiple steps to make it harder for you to see it through. I mean, that is a, you know, a nefarious use of, of sludge, but we can use sludges in our own working lives as well. And, you know, that inbox when ready example is a really 
good example of it. You know, the very fact of just simply having to click an extra button to see my inbox so that I'm not mindlessly grazing my email, you know, it's barely there as a as an intervention. It's just a tiny thing that makes it a bit harder to look at my inbox when I'm actually trying to batch my email processing. And, you know, I love these things because, you know, they don't stop you from checking your email if you really need to, but it just makes it that tiny bit harder to do the thing that you said you don't want to do. And that sludge. <laughs> That's fascinating. And, uh, you know, I think we, we had a previous interview a couple of weeks ago with Adam Alter, where we went really deep mm-hmm. into phone addiction and how dangerous it is. And after that interview, I installed the Moment app on my phone, which you know doesn't really do anything other than just kind of track how much screen time you spend every day. Um, yeah. Even I, that kind yeah. Of conscious awareness has helped me reduce the amount of time I spend on my phone. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. And Adam is such a great thinker in this field. I think we're all experimenting with this wildly. We need to right now because, you know, we are in an environment where we're bombarding ourselves with more information than we've ever dealt with before. And you've probably heard the term that Clay Shirky popularized a while back, which was filter failure. So his argument was that, you know, there are advances in information technology throughout human history. And what happens is that after a certain point, you know, we see more information. So when books were invented and then when the printing press was invented and so on, each of these advances in technology resulted in a massive increase in the amount of information available to the average person. And initially, people just felt completely overwhelmed. And then it turns out that it's possible to think about, well, how do you filter out the information you don't need? And there's definitely a a sense that I'm feeling that finally people are starting to think about the fact that they shouldn't be trying to consume all the information. It just makes us feel miserable and stressed and makes us, you know, less able to think clearly. But now to to think more intelligently about when is it that I, I engage with the information stream and you know, how do I kind of make sure that I I really do focus my intense engagement at those times? And how do I filter out what I really don't need to see and hear? And I think we're all figuring this out, some of us faster than others. But it's definitely one of those areas where if I'm talking to clients or talking to giving a talk about this topic, I am not holier than thou. This is something I'm working on myself every single day. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are, too. I've tried so many bras in the past— 
And the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Hiring the right person takes time, time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. When we were talking about priorities or when we were talking about single tasking you, you kind of touched on the idea that you know single tasking on your key priorities is, is really essential and and I want to back up the conversation and come back to that idea because I think that's really important and I know you've written and talked a lot about kind of how and why we should set priorities well we the currency of our lives if you like is attention right it's where do we put our our attention where do we choose to direct our focus I mean what else do we have you can say it's time. I mean, certainly, you know, there's a question of time, but, you know, we all know that we can spend time just gazing into space. The question is, where you, where do you want to put your attention? And I think that most of us are a little bit mindless about that. You know, we, we might be in jobs where we are, you know, working very hard and we've got a bunch of stuff that's incoming all the time and, you know, a long to-do list. But a lot of the time, we're not that proactive in thinking ahead about, okay, well, what really matters most here? And where do I really want to put my attention? And actually, at the most basic level, there is a question about what you want to notice, because the deliberate system can only of the brain can only take in a certain amount of information at once. And there are trillions of pieces of data around us at any given time. So we can't perceive it all. We simply can't. And we don't know what we don't know. Uh, but what's happening is that our brain is constantly making choices about what deserves our conscious attention. And the automatic system is filtering out a ton of stuff. Uh, that's one of its roles is to lighten the load on the deliberate system of the brain so that you know we can get things done and we don't have our brains crash like overloaded computers. But the thing is that there's a, a bit of a rule on how brain decides what's important enough for us to see consciously and what's not important that should be just filtered out as spam that we're not noticing. And it basically goes like this. 
whatever you have top of mind will tell your brain that you should see or hear things that are relevant to that. And then everything else is filtered out. So we know that in a way, if you buy a new car, you see all the cars on the road that are the same model. If you, I, I bought some Nike sneakers for the first time couple of years ago. And I never, I don't know why I'd never bought Nike sneakers before, but I hadn't. And I was in the, the Flatiron store in New York, despite my accent, that's where I live. And I came out of the store and I was you know, super excited about my new Nike sneakers that were so comfortable. And then I suddenly noticed that half of New York was wearing Nike sneakers, which, you know, I'd never seen before. And it was probably unlikely that they just bought the sneakers you know, it just, it was just that I hadn't noticed before because Nike sneakers weren't top of mind for me. And so that's what's going on all the time. If we go into a conversation then, and we have something top of mind, we're going to see things that confirm or match our state of mind. There was a study that was done where people signed up for a psychology experiment and they were all given a test to take. And Half of the people were put in a slightly bad mood by being told kind of randomly that they had they had failed the test. It wasn't a big deal, but it was enough to tick you off just very slightly. And then everybody was given a neutral description of an individual, and they had to tell the researchers how likable this person was. And because there were some people who were totally fine, they went and looked at this description of the individual. They thought this person was perfectly likable. And then the others who were in a slightly bad mood because they were in a bad mood, perceived this person as less likable. And that's how subtle this effect is, that what is top of mind for us as we go into a situation will determine what we see. If we go into a conversation expecting someone to be a jerk, we will notice everything that confirms we're right. That's what confirmation bias is. So at the very basic level, being more deliberate about what really matters to us as we go into a conversation actually dramatically shapes the way we experience reality. And I'm not saying that the person you're going to talk to isn't a bit of a jerk, to be clear. <laughs> but um, if you go into the conversation and you're focused on your negative expectations, you are likely to see what confirms that. If you go into a conversation and you said, okay, this person's a bit of a jerk, but I'm really looking for signs of possible collaboration here. Magically, you are more likely to see that because you've told your brain that that's one of the things that's relevant enough for you to see rather than to filter out. And you are entirely capable of missing things that and filtering out things that don't seem relevant or on point. So this really matters and it can really shape the way you experience every every conversation and every day. I think it's such a great point. And, and, and I mean, it's something that's experimentally been shown many, many different times. And I'm sure, you know, people have had experiences in their own life where, where their kind of perceptions or their filters have shaped what they perceive to be true. Yeah. And, you know, everybody knows the classic study that kicked off this whole field of research in selective attention, the, the one that Chris Chabry and Dan Simons did with the gorilla, you know, where you have eight students playing basketball and the audience is told to watch the passes made between the four players wearing white T-shirts and then halfway through the game, a woman in a gorilla suit comes on and starts beating her chest and she stands in the middle of the frame and then walks off. And then when you ask people, did you see anything strange after you've asked them, you know, how many passes were there between the people in white T-shirts? Only half the people will see the gorilla because that wasn't what was top of mind for them. And you see this playing out in so many different, uh, so many different studies since then, which often use 
gorillas as an homage to the original gorilla to show what it is that we're capable of filtering out. So, you know, if there's one thing that, you know, I do every day, it's just decide what my intentions are at the beginning of the day. What do I really want to focus on? If if there's one thing I do before I'm going on stage or before I'm running a workshop or before I'm coaching a client, it's to say, okay, what do I really want to pay attention to here? Knowing that if I don't, if I'm not deliberate about that, I might miss stuff that really matters just because it's not top of mind for me. So the, the practical application of this idea is that, is that we should try and use this natural kind of feature of the brain's hardware to our advantage by priming and thinking about the right things. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that we've all heard this sort of new agey term of being intentional. Well, there is actually this hard science that sits behind it, which is to say, if you are deliberate about setting your intentions before you go into a conversation, you'll, you decide what you want to have top of mind, you want what's your aim, what attitude do you want to have as you go into this? If you've got negative assumptions, can you check them? Maybe, you know, say maybe there might be a reason why they're not true just today. You are going to shape where your attention goes. And some of you might have noticed there's a bit of alliteration there. Aim, attitude, assumptions, attention. And that's because it helps me remember before I'm going into something important that actually I want to check my aim, my attitude, my assumptions, knowing it's going to direct my attention. And if I do nothing else, then I say, okay, what do I most want to notice? I just ask myself the attention question. And that really helps if you're going to a meeting, say that you're not really looking forward to. If you're in a bad mood, you're going to see everything that confirms that you're right to think that, you know, it's a bad meeting. (laughs) But if you check yourself before and say, okay, my aim here really is to help this be a good meeting, then you're going to see opportunities to actually improve the quality of the conversation uh, that you might have missed otherwise. And I want to zoom out a little bit and talk about a, a related concept that you've shared. Tell me how this kind of weaves in with the idea of, of being in a defensive mode versus being in a discovery mode. Yeah, we talked about the two systems of the brain, deliberate system, automatic system. Uh, this is a double click on the automatic system. We've talked about the fact that the automatic system does a lot of really helpful things for us. One is obviously filtering out things that are irrelevant and helping us make quick decisions when a quick decision is a good thing. But another thing that the automatic system does is keeps us safe. It launches, if it perceives a threat in the environment, it launches a defensive response. And obviously, historically, those threats have often been physical threats to our our safety. You know, the classic example is the saber-toothed tiger bounding towards you on the savannah. But brain is constantly scanning automatically for not just physical threats, but also threats to our sense of self-worth and our sense of social standing. And it doesn't have to be a physical threat. It can be a threat to our sense of competence, our sense of autonomy, our sense of purpose, our sense of fairness, inclusion, respect, all these kind of more existential things. If any of those are under threat, the brain does perceive it as a threat and launches a defensive response. And, you know, that is sometimes known as the fight or flight response. In fact, research shows there's also a third response, which is to freeze. And in doing that, it takes a certain amount of mental energy to launch this defensive response. And what you see is that when someone is under pressure in a, in a negative way, if you put them in a brain scanner and you show them even mildly upsetting images, enough to make them feel that there's potentially a bit of a threat to the subconscious level, then what you see is there's less activity in their prefrontal cortex. As the brain is directing mental energy to more basic functions. The prefrontal cortex, as you will probably know, is where reasoning, self-control, and planning, and so forth sit. So in other words, what happens is 
there's less activity in the part of the brain that's sophisticated and thoughtful, which means in even plainer language that when you feel at all threatened or undermined, you become dumber, which is a real shame because it's often at the moment that you need to step up. And that's why, you know, we might do stupid things when we are under pressure or feeling that our competence, we're out of our depth or that we're feeling our, our toes are being trodden on. So understanding that that's what happens to us when we're in defensive mode and understanding that actually that's mostly what's causing most bad behavior that you might encounter in anyone else. It's super helpful. I mean, first of all, it makes you feel, it restores a tiny bit of faith in, you know, human nature to know that most bad behavior is because of someone's brain being somewhat on the defensive. But it also, you know, the more that you can tune into what defensive mode looks like in yourself, then the more likely you are to be able to to get yourself out of defensive mode and to get yourself thinking clearly in difficult situations. So I spend a lot of time with people helping them tune into what does this look like in me when I'm on the defensive and what does it take? There are a ton of interesting techniques you can use to reduce the defensiveness and then you know, allow you to essentially bring your prefrontal cortex back online. Though I don't think a neuroscientist would like that language. I think that's uh, you know, perhaps a, a nice analogy for us to think about. Tell me about some of those strategies and tactics for kind of reducing that defensive reaction. There's some stuff that works super quickly. The research is fascinating on these techniques because you can really easily build them into your routines. So one is distancing. So when we put ourselves at some distance from the situation, we essentially tell our brain that the threat is further away and therefore, you know, it can come off alert. And you can do that in a simpler way of saying, what will I think about this when I look back in a year's time? Or you can get distance, not in terms of time, but in putting yourself in someone else's shoes. You can say, what would my wisest friend advise me about this? Or what would I advise a friend if they were in this situation? And, <laughs> you know, what, what happens, you, you know how brilliant and amazing and insightful you can be when you're giving other people advice on their problems that, you know, it might be harder for you to take in your own life. One of the reasons that you are so intelligent and wise when you're giving other people advice is because you're not threatened at all by their problems. So you can think really clearly. <laughs> so you're borrowing a bit of that wisdom of distance by simply asking yourself, getting yourself a go-to question to ask in the heat of the moment. And so for me, I do say, you know, what will I think about this in a year's time? The other thing that's really immediate is actually just to label how you're feeling. And, you know, decades of therapists have understood the power of this. And I think, you know, the research has sort of caught up with it in a way. We now know that by labeling the emotion that you are experiencing it, doing it crisply, not wallowing, but just saying, I'm feeling frustrated because I've sent three emails to this person and they haven't replied. Just the very fact of labeling and acknowledging seems to, well, and now I'm going to sort of use some narrative to describe what we think is happening, seems to sort of tell our brains that the threat has been acknowledged. We've got, we've got the message. <laughs> and then it, it sort of dampens the immediate response system, which allows us then to think more clearly. I think we're still working out exactly what's going on and why this is so effective. But there's no doubt that this has been used in practice for many, many years, really, really effectively. So just at the end of the day, if there's something that's really riled you up, taking a piece of paper, you don't have to take a piece of paper, you can take a piece of paper if you want, and just writing, I feel really annoyed because. And then, I mean, if for added dramatic effect, you can screw up the piece of paper and throw it in the, <laughs> in the trash if you like. But these things are really, you know, they have a very quick effect. And that's, that's, uh, that's very useful when you're in the heat of the moment. 
any other strategies that that are worth kind of digging into that listeners might be able to quickly implement? Oh, yes, there are lots. Um, what else do I like? Uh, I like something called reappraisal. That actually is a slightly deeper technique, which I I will say has long-term effects. It's been shown to have particularly long-lasting effects, I think, because it sort of starts to train train yourself to think flexibly about alternative explanations of what's going on. And that's really what a reappraisal is. It says, first of all, what are the facts of what's happened? So often when we think about something that's really annoyed us or stressing us out, we generalize and, I mean, maybe not catastrophize, but we do kind of say, they never treat me with respect when actually what's happened is perhaps something very specific. And it might be a repeated behavior, but if you can kind of say instead of, they never treat me with respect and say, I've sent three emails and I have not received a reply to any of them. Okay, so that's the thing that you know. You start with the facts, the actual facts that you can say for sure. Even if you start to say they ignored my email, that's actually an interpretation because that suggests they're conscious of it and they've ignored it. So no, you start with the facts and then you say, what would be an alternative? You know, what, what am I assuming? So I'm assuming that they've seen the emails and they're willfully ignoring them. What would be an alternative explanation? And that's it. That's that's the reappraisal is to say, what would be the alternative explanation? And frankly, the alternative explanation doesn't have to be true. It's just the contemplation of the fact that the person who is annoying you is not necessarily evil. And of course, the moment you start thinking about it, you think, oh, well, you know, maybe there's something about my email address that's, you know, being tagged as spam. Maybe they're entirely overwhelmed and you know, they're, they're ignoring everybody at the moment. Maybe there's something terrible going on in their, in their lives. You know, maybe their, maybe their mother is really sick. Maybe, maybe something. And I discovered recently there was someone who had ignored an email of mine and something awful had happened with his child. And it really helped me in the moment to just consider the possibility that something else had happened. And I was very glad when I realized that, um, you know, I hadn't jumped to conclusions about what was going on. The story isn't always as dramatic as that, but just the fact of entertaining an alternative explanation is is helpful because only 1% of the population is a psychopath, you know. <laughs> and actually just thinking about what could be a different explanation tends to reduce our sense of being wronged and therefore reduces our state of alert, which reduces our defensiveness and then allows us to think more clearly about what the right next step is. That reminds me a lot of, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Byron Katie and her sort of method called the work, but it's a very similar sort of series of questions that kind of breaks okay. down negative thoughts and, and is, uh, you know, I guess sort of using the reappraisal strategy. Yeah. And, you know, to be clear, I'm not saying that the bad thing isn't the true story, but the point is that, you know, if you want to take yourself off the defensive, considering what other alternatives might be in the mix is a good way of helping you think more clearly. You know, there's a lot, a bit of a backlash at the moment about positive thinking and how, you know, negative emotions are important. And, you know, the truth is, yes, of course, you know, the idea is not to just think positively about everything, but it's to understand the way that your brain works so that you can, you said earlier on, that you can kind of hack the way that your brain works so that you can use this knowledge to, to think more clearly, to 
have more energy, to feel more motivated. And in this particular case, just the flexibility of considering alternative explanations has been shown to dramatically increase our resilience, our emotional resilience to things that are annoying us and help us find ways to move on. And that is a skill that, you know, all of us really benefit from learning. Another topic that I know you've you've talked about that I want to touch on is being in kind of a, and, and I think it underscores a lot of the things we've talked about today, but kind of tying them together in some ways, is being in sort of a proactive, positive place versus being in a reactive place. Mm. Well, I think that's in a way the meta theme of everything that I do, which is to say, you've got more control than you think. I mean, this isn't the secret. We're not saying you can stand in front of a mirror and say everything is awesome and then it will be. But we do have more control over what the things that seem to be done to us or that seem to be random than most of us realize. And we talk quite extensively about selective attention and the fact that the intentions you have top of mind will shape the perception of what seems to happen to you. That's probably the most profound. But the same, you know, the same thing might be said about the more practical stuff we've talked about with, you know, multitasking and single tasking. We feel overwhelmed. We've got so much to do. Our days are so long. Well, <laughs> if you could make yourself 30% faster in getting stuff done by single tasking, I mean, that feels like a bit of a superpower, doesn't it? And I think just understanding that we do have these small tweaks we can make to our everyday lives that can have disproportionate effects in the way that everyday feels. You know, I'm not saying that if something terrible is going on in your life, you know, maybe there's a bereavement, maybe you're in the middle of a war zone. I'm not saying you can wish these things away, but there are tiny things that we can do that can make every day feel better, whether it's using reappraisal to think more clearly in a difficult situation, whether it's single tasking, whether it's, uh, well, there, there are any number of other things, as you know, there are about 100 things in my book. But the point is, you know, we do have these, this little bit more wiggle room than we tend to exploit from day to day. So, yeah. I'm a big fan of being proactive. <laughs> and and one of the things that I think can often kind of contribute to the sort of overload or, or being put in a reactive place, and I know this is true for myself especially, is not being able to or kind of, you know, not wanting to say no to people. How can, how can mm. we deal with other people's demands on our time? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, none of us is sort of in a vacuum. And here we are talking about, yes, the importance of setting boundaries and, you know, try to work 50 hours, not 80 hours a week. And a lot of people were saying, well, that would be nice, but that's not the reality that I'm in. How do I set boundaries and how do I do it without ruining my relationships? And, you know, there are lots of, lots of fantastic techniques out there for saying no elegantly, gracefully. There's one that I particularly like, which I call the positive no, which I borrowed from William Uri. And the way it works is because of the neuroscience around defensive mode. Normally, when we think about saying no to something, we start with sorry. And it seems like a reasonable thing to do if you're not a terrible person to, you know, if we say, I'm sorry, I can't attend the meeting or I'm sorry, I have to cancel my participation in this out of the other. But the actual, the interesting thing is that when we're tied up with our stress at saying no to something, we often forget, first of all, to say something appreciative that keeps the other person in what I call the opposite of defensive mode, I call discovery mode. And if you start with something, first of all, that talks about appreciating what it is that they're asking, you know, maybe it's a meeting that you, you definitely now can't go to and you know that you're supposed to go to, but you just can't make the time because you're really trying to single task around some enormously important project, for example, and you need to get a nice big unbroken chunk of time in order to do that. So you say, 
it's great to see where the project is reached. And I know this meeting is, you know, really critical juncture and blah, 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 blah. You say something appreciative about the request, you know, the fact that I'm really grateful that you thought to include me. Then you start with what you're saying yes to, not what you're saying no to. So you say, I've got an exciting project that's on my plate that I need to complete by the end of this week. And if we get it right, then it's going to be transformational for the way that the company moves forward. As a result, and here's your no, but only after your yes. Then you say, as a result, I'm having to make some tough choices about where I'm putting my time. And that means I'm having to clear some space in my calendar and I'm not going to be able to come to the meeting. I'm so sorry. Then you get to say sorry. It's not that, you know, you're not a, a nasty person. You get to say sorry, but you start with warmth, then what it is you're saying yes to, and then you say your no. And of course, if you can end with warmth and wish them well, that's also something we tend to forget when we're stressed about saying no. And the interesting thing about this is that it reduces the defensiveness in the other person's mind because you are first of all, being respectful in talking about what, you know, what they're asking. And you're just giving them a little bit of surprise and delight and interest in what it is that you're doing instead. And of course, you're still being apologetic. But what it means is that you're not immediately putting them on the defensive by saying by starting with the I'm sorry, uh, at which point they know that, you know, there's no good news here. And sometimes people say, yeah, but don't they know that that's really where this is going? And I say, yes, but it still somehow lands differently because their brain isn't so much on the defensive. You're not just saying something, you know, negative. And you know what? I've I've taught this to people and then I've had there was one client who did it back to me and I didn't realize until the end of the email that that's what he'd done. And I'd spent the whole email thinking, oh, it's great that he's going to go and do this thing with his son. And then, oh, and then he can't come to do this meeting with me. And But I was so thrilled about reading about you know, what he was that he was going to do with his son that I got to the end of the email before I realized, oh, he's just done the positive no on me. <laughs> and I felt more expansive and more generous towards him than if he'd simply said, I'm sorry, I can't come to the meeting. That's great. I love that. Not definitely be implementing that into my life. So what would one kind of piece of homework be that you would give to our listeners to start concretely implementing some of the ideas that we've talked about today? Well, I think recognizing that your brain's deliberate system has limitations and a certain amount of attention, and it's not infinite amounts of attention, meaning that you can be more deliberate about what you notice and then what you remember. So starting the day by saying, what are my intentions for today? What really matters today? What do I want to have top of mind? Perhaps as I go into the most important interaction of the day, you know, what is the, what is my aim? What is my attitude? What assumptions do I have? Where do I want to put my attention? And then at the end of the day to look back and say, okay, maybe it was a good day, maybe it was a bad day, but what are three good things that happened today? Knowing that the way that our memory works, we tend to remember only a, a small number of the things that actually happened to us. So directing your attention to the things that you really want to make sure you remember, perhaps even especially important on a bad day, you often forget a few good things that might have happened, you know, <laughs> yeah, may maybe you remembered your umbrella. Okay, maybe that was a tiny thing. <laughs> 
<laughs> but the fact that, you know, you maybe were planful enough that you remembered your umbrella, you know, that is not nothing. And to remember at the end of the day what went well also hacks something that economists call the peak end effect, which is to say that when you remember the quality of an experience, we tend to average two points, the most intense moment, the peak and the end. So if you end the day by looking back at what went well, you're in effect hacking that mental trick of saying, actually, what you're going to remember of the day is going to be disproportionately influenced by the way that it ends. So you might as well end it by reviewing what was good and recognizing that, you know, where we put our attention becomes how we feel about our lives. I think that that start and end is really a very good place to start if you're keen to think about what does behavioral science tell me about how to improve the way I feel about my life. And where can listeners find you and your book and, and your work online? I am at carolineweb.co. And that is not .com because it turns out there are a billion Caroline Webs in the world. I did not get carolineweb.com, but I got carolineweb.co. And you can find a ton of articles there. You can sign up for a very occasional newsletter. Uh, there are videos. There are wonderful podcasts like this one. And you can also take a quiz, which is linked to all the themes in the book. And you can download a free chapter of the book. So that's probably the place I'd go. I'm also on Twitter and Facebook and all the usual places. And I'm posting little nuggets of science-based advice there each day. So hopefully that gives people a sense of where to find me. Well, Caroline, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all this wisdom, lots of really practical and actionable insights that are rooted in science. So I really appreciate you coming on the show and, and sharing all this knowledge. Fantastic. It's been great talking to you, Matt. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.